So it's 1989, I was 22 years old, and I experienced probably the, the greatest amount of pain and suffering I could have ever experienced, at least certainly up to that point in my life. And it wasn't physical pain, it wasn't like the physical pain I experienced when I was, you know, a couple years earlier than that when I fell off a roof 20 feet and landed on my head and my shoulder and caused some injuries to myself. This pain was a lot deeper than physical. I was, uh, I had the opportunity to go to the Indianapolis 500, decided not to go. Five of my best friends decided to go. And uh, I was, it was a Sunday of course, so I was teaching Sunday school to uh, a bunch of high school kids. The youth pastor pulls me out of the, the room. He says, hey, don't you know, the guy's been in a car accident uh, and that has passed away. And, Sorry. Um, Stop for all these years. Um, so Andy and I, the youth pastor and I, and one of the moms, uh, drove down to Indianapolis. We picked up a couple of guys that were able to be released. And uh, longest drive ever, you know, uh, from Chicago down to Indianapolis. Coming back was even longer, just quietness, knowing that Ed had passed away. Ed was one of the greatest guys you'd ever meet. Um, Six foot two, 125 pounds, just a beanpole. Um, long hair, he's a grease monkey. Um, his 69 Chevelle that he drove all the time uh, could beat Corvettes uh, in drag races. Um, not that I was ever in the car when it did that, I But uh, yeah, just a wonderful guy. And I remember coming home, sitting in my parents' bed, just wallowing my eyes out. Could not believe that Ed was gone. Um, he's a great guy. Some of you guys know, um, remember Josh Cable, um, if you're from Fremont area, Grace Community Church. Josh, 30-something-year-old guy, um, had cancer, fought it, was declared cancer-free, um, and then four months later died of cancer. It had come back and just went through his entire body killed him within several weeks. Kim and I, um, we were, had been married for a couple of years. Our daughter, oldest daughter, was four months old. We were on our new adventure. You know, our, it was just kidding me against the world. Living out in Nebraska, so it wasn't much, a lot of people to fight against. I'm just kidding. So we're out in Nebraska. We're working at a Christian camp. Kim gets up one morning, three in the morning, to, to feed Sarah. And she gets back in bed. She goes, hey, the pipes are frozen. We lived in a trailer, it's a pretty old trailer, and uh, we didn't know, we didn't never lived in a trailer before, we didn't know you had to keep your water running on a very, very cold night. This is Martin Luther uh, King Day in January. And uh, so I said, well, nothing we do about it, I'll call Bruce when, when I get up. So I get up and I'm 6.30, 7 o'clock, I, I give Bruce a call. Kim's still in bed, I'm laying on the couch watching the, the earthquakes and fires in California, and I'm smelling smoke, and I thought, wow, this is like real TV. Smelling uh, smoke, and also they hear Kim yelling, "We've got a fire!" Um, so she ran back and got Sarah and um, got her out. The fire was coming right above her bed, her crib, and uh, found out that Bruce had called the other maintenance guys, and uh, he showed up with a blowtorch uh, and literally didn't mean to let our trailer on fire. We lost everything. Um, we did save Kim's wedding dress and. Uh, a, uh, a, a trunk of towels that we had saved somewhere else in the camp 
I tell you those stories, um, just to let you guys know, just because I've followed Christ since I was a young kid and gave my life to him when I was four years old, or the fact that I'm a pastor, doesn't mean that I haven't had pain and suffering, that God hasn't allowed pain and suffering in my life. We can sit here for probably a good week and all of us share stories of pain and suffering that we have in our lives. It's in our world, it's in our own lives, and, and it seems to fly in the face of this idea that we have a loving God. So this morning what I want to do is uh, hopefully bring some understanding from God's Word about pain and suffering and what that is and, and how God uses it in our lives. I want to answer uh, three questions. Um, again, there is a lot of different ways you can deal with pain and suffering um, and understanding who God is. I'm choosing to go at it. I'm a very simple-minded person, kind of rubber bits the road kind of guy. Uh, so I want to answer three questions. And I only have 30 or 40 minutes to do it. I don't want to take up all your day today. Um, we're going to use a lot of scripture because I want God to speak for himself. But I also want to offer this, that if you're like here, like I need to talk about this some more, I need some more understanding or, you know, whatever, feel free to contact me, you know, I won't even make you buy the coffee, you know, I'll, I'll take care of it, you know, just get a hold of me, we can talk more about it, and look at God's Word together, um, I've given you some, a handout, that way you can take it home and kind of work through it during the week, but here are the three questions I want to talk about this morning, first of all, where does pain and suffering come from? Secondly, why does God allow us to experience pain and suffering? And then thirdly, what should our response be to that pain and suffering? So let's jump right into it here and kind of see where pain and suffering comes from. First of all, man, not God, brought pain and suffering into this world. God created this world perfect. He created it without sin, without pain, without suffering. It was a perfect world. He didn't need to do this um, because if God needed to create something, that means that he's lacking, which means that he's not God. God existed prior to creation. He existed wholly and completely, wasn't needing anything. But he created this world in order to show how great he is and to share himself with those that he created. So he chose to create mankind, and mankind was unique from all other, other cre uh, creatures. Genesis 1, 26 and 27, and then Genesis 2 says this, And God said, Let us make man, let us, it's a plural, it means God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, having this conversation within themselves, let us make man in our own image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. That's why I find it okay if I see a spider to step on it. Okay, I just want to make sure. Uh, God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them, in Genesis 2, 7. That the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So man is unique in that God has placed in him God's image, and the fact that he had breathed into him 
the breath of life. God created a lot of things in those six days, but he never breathed into his creation other than man, this idea of the breath of life, this living uh, spiritual side of man. In other words, he created mankind, created you and me for a relationship with him. What that means, and there's a lot of different ways to express it, but I'm going to express it three ways. That first of all, he created us for fellowship. So God in and of himself, three persons in one, has fellowship within who he is. But he designed us so that we could then have a relationship with him, have fellowship with him. He's created us, uh, Adam and Eve, with perfect conscience and moral compass. In other words, they knew, in their case, they knew good. They knew right. They're going to have a choice for wrong, but they knew the good. They knew the right. And though it's infected us, sin has infected us, we still know what good is. We still know what wrong is. Everyone lives by some sort of moral compass, and that's a reflection of God's holiness in us. And most importantly, God created us with free will, the, the ability to think and to reason, to make choices which that reflects God's intellect and freedom. So God created us with, with ability to choose, with the ability uh, to have free will. He wants a relationship with us, but he doesn't want robots. Okay, in spite of what's going on in robotics today, and if you've done any reading, you know it's getting pretty scary <laughs> what's going on, but they're making relational robots. In all types of relations, if I can put it that way, okay? They're never going to fulfill a person's emotional, relational needs. God didn't want robots. God didn't want to force himself on us. He wanted us to choose. The forced relationship is what we call slavery. Um, it it's ends up in bitterness. It's, it's, it's no relationship at all. He's not a dictator. He's a, a loving creator. So he creates this perfect environment. He create, creates two perfect people. And he wants them to choose him. And so he gives them the opportunity. Now, now again, we'll read it. But everything that God created was good for them to do and be a part of. Except for one thing. Genesis 2, 15-17, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. I mean, someone's got to pluck the fruit, right, in order to eat it. Right? So, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you will not eat, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it or from it you will surely die. It wasn't that this fruit, whatever it was, had some magical thing to it. It was the choice that they were going to make. If they chose God and trusted God and, and did what he asked them to do, they would continue to know the world in all of its perfection. And, and wonder and relationship with God and it would be a, a beautiful thing. If they chose to trust themselves and look at this one tree and say, God's holding back from me, so I'm going to take from it, they would experience evil. They would experience death. They would still know what good was. 
And that might be the killer, you know, when you think about it. They knew what good was, they saw it, they experienced it. But now they would know personally and experience the reality of evil. So we, we, I think we all kind of know what happens, right? So man sins, he chooses self over God, and it brings evil and death, not just to him, but to all creation. Satan, who had already had this choice sometime before creation, makes the choice that he's going to be God, which is what Adam and Eve were doing, right? Ultimately, they were saying, I know better than God, so I'm going to do what I want to do. Satan had already made that decision. A bunch of angels had made it with him. He's already brought evil to the spiritual world. He takes the form of a serpent. He questions what God had told Adam. And that puts doubt in Eve's mind. In Genesis 3, 6, 3, 6 it says, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, I'm talking about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God said, here's what it is. She starts looking at it the way she's going to look at it. So she sees it was good for food, and that was delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took from its fruit and ate. She gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Now we can go into the whole discussion about what's going on there, but ultimately, from Scripture, we know Adam was the one who had this told to him, and I think his responsibility was to tell Eve, and it didn't get conveyed right, and Eve was deceived. Adam sinned, and Eve was deceived, is what Scripture says. And so though they were perfect, and they lived in a perfect conditions, when given a chance to trust God, they chose themselves. They chose their perspective. Adam is mankind's representative before God sinned, and that brought physical and spiritual death to all mankind. Paul, Apostle Paul talks about this in Romans 5.12. In Romans 5.12, if you read that, he says this three different ways, but I only give you one. It says, therefore, just as through one man, Adam, sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all have sinned. So sin has now become part of our DNA, part of our spiritual DNA, our spiritual makeup. We have sin. We're born in sin. We choose sin. So sin causes all of us to fall short of God's glory, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, we are sin-filled. We're we're unholy. God's holy. He has no sin. We're not unholy. We are sin-filled. We're imperfect. We're unable to be in God's presence. Paul talks about in Ephesians 2 that we're spiritually dead, which means we have no ability to have a relationship with God. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. It says, You are dead in your trespasses and sins. Now he's talking to people who have already received God's forgiveness through their faith in Jesus Christ and what Christ did on the cross. But he's Reminding them what it was like prior to, which I think is always good for us to remember, because we're all messed up. We're all sinners. We all need a Savior. And so he's reminding them. He says, you are dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the year, of the spirit that is now working the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly walked or lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. That's what Adam and Eve did. Okay? They were looking at things. They were thinking things their way. They were wanting things their way. And that's how we live our lives outside of Christ. And we're by nature children of wrath. But Adam was also the caretaker for creation, for the, for the plants and the animals, for our world. 
And that death that was brought to mankind, the spiritual death and physical death, also permeated into our world. Romans 8, Paul again is talking about this. It says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. So God put the care of creation under man's responsibility in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery and corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth until now. So God places mankind over creation, Adam's sin infects creation. In fact, it's interesting, if you read through the Old Testament, and uh, the further you get away from the garden, you know, so as you get through Genesis, you'll see that the younger people die. Some initially are living to almost a thousand years. Methuselah, I think is the guy's name. And then you get down to, you know, Moses, and he's living, what, 120 years or wherever it was that he lived. So sin has impacted nature, it has impacted our bodies. And if it wasn't for the medicines we have today, we'd still see, as in Jesus' day, maybe someone's average lifespan being 35 years. Revelation tells us that one day God's going to create a new world, a new heaven, a new earth, where sin's not going to impact that. But we have storms today, we have disease today, we have issues today. So we see this issue of sin has impacted us. Number one, it's impacted us. We make poor choices. So sometimes our, our pain and suffering comes from the choices that we make, purposely, choosing to do life outside of God's way. Very simple. Uh, you've all its prime experiences. Uh, texting and driving. Person chooses to go against the law, texts, swerves into oncoming traffic, and now they feel the consequences of that. Um, we also have uh, you know, the reverse of that in the sense that other people's choices that impact us. I'm driving back from Pauline a couple of Wednesdays ago. Ellie and I have been down at the Grace Community Church down there doing a Bible study. And I'm driving, you know, it's 9 o'clock at night. I'm just cruising along seven trucks, taking a really long time getting past me. Next thing you know, he's in my lane. I'm still there. <laughs> okay? Um, little pain, little suffering, little stress was happening. I got onto the shoulder. He realized it. Fortunately, Lord, thank you, Lord, that things weren't difficult. But other people's choices, layoffs at work. People choosing to rob people, looting that goes on. We experience sickness and disease. We experience natural disasters. These are things all because man chose to go against what God desired. So that's where it comes from. But why does God continue to use it or allow it? Why doesn't God just whisk it all away and allow us to have a life free of pain and suffering. Well, the first thing is this. He wants to get our attention. So Adam and Eve had a relationship with God. Amos says that they walked through the garden with God. Not that he was a physical present necessarily, but they were had this intimate relationship with God where they walked through the garden and they talked with him. And that's the relationship that God still desires with us today, even in an imperfect world. He wants to restore that relationship. He wants to reconcile that and put it back to where it used to be. And just imagine 
having an all-powerful, all-knowing, loving God who's going to protect, provide, fight for us, be the one who takes us through this life and then into eternity one day. Spend a couple minutes reading through Scripture, and you'll see that anytime Israel, for instance, made bad choices, and they made some pretty bad choices, they felt and God let them feel the natural consequences of those choices. But that choice, or that those consequences, that pain and suffering caused them to finally call out to Him, to finally realize we can't, we're screwed up, we messed up, we need God again. So they would come back to God, they would confess their sin, God would forgive them, and He would restore order to their life. And He did it over and over again. And He continued to meet their needs. In the Gospels, I mean, that's what the Gospels is kind of all about. Jesus walking through this world and people coming to him with their pain and their suffering, looking for some help, looking for somebody to care for them, to heal them, to heal one of their family members. And there was times where Jesus couldn't even walk because people were coming in on him. They believed he was God. They believed he could heal them. See, our tendency is to, to look at our personal comfort. Believe me, I live in that world. I'm always, I'd rather have my comfort than me feel pain. But our focus is, is on the earthly. It's on the, I want my comfort. God's focus is on the eternity. Our eternal destiny. The eternal destiny is one of two places. It's either heaven with him or in hell without him. He believes that. Okay, Hell was something he created for Satan and his demons back in the day when they decided to reject God. It wasn't really, it wasn't meant for mankind until man made the same choice that Satan did. And it's why Jesus, God in the flesh, chose to take the most excruciating pain and suffering any person has probably ever experienced and was beaten and humiliated spit upon and then hung on a cross. He chose to take that kind of pain and suffering on our behalf. He was the only one who could do that. Only God could do that and die an eternal death for mankind and then rise again and then apply that death and that new life to our account to be the substitute that we need. First John, the Apostle John writes this, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is a propitiation. Huh? Take that word to work tomorrow. <laughs> you know? It, like if, if someone's doing something and you want to, to do it for them, may I be your propitiation? And see what they do with it. I'm just okay. Maybe not. Um, that's like a forty-five or fifty-dollar word. I mean, that's big stuff. That's Christian ease to the nth degree. Okay. Anyway, so he himself is a propitiation or the substitute for our sins, not for ours only, but also those of the whole world. So people ask how a loving God can allow pain and suffering. But the question I can throw back at them and think for myself is. How could God love 
sinful man so much that he would be willing to experience the pain and suffering for me? That to me, I think, is a far better question and maybe one that we need to be asking our friends and family who need Christ. Jesus is that kind of God. He did that for you. He did that for me. He does that because he loves us. He's, again, not going to force himself on us. But he's going to demonstrate that kind of love for us in hopes that we would choose him. And we only have this life to turn to God for that relationship. Hebrews 9.27 says, And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes the judgment. Earthly death until the Lord returns is a reality for all of us. And pain and suffering is what, is what typically happens to somebody who is, uh, as they lose their life, as life comes to an end. So he allows that pain and suffering, but he desperately wants people to, to come to him, to not face the eternal pain and suffering, but to experience that, that eternal comfort and eternal life that he offers. First Timothy 2 says this, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God desires all men to be saved. For there is one God, one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. So for those who don't know Christ, that's he's trying to get your attention. Those that are in your life who need Christ are going through difficult times. He's trying to get your attention. He's trying to get them to turn to Him. But what about those of us who have put our faith in Christ? Why don't we just, why doesn't God just bless us and give us health and wealth and we can do whatever we want to do and we're just good to go? Well, He uses it in our lives as well. And He uses it to discipline us. And by discipline, I mean correct and train us. It's like any good father would do and a good coach would do. And this is kind of a long passage, so stick with me. It says, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in, in your striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. And he goes back to the Old Testament, so it's capitalized the way it is. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children, not sons. Furthermore, we had an earthly father to discipline us, and we respected them. So we not much rather be subject to the Father of Spirits and live? For this, for they discipline us for a short time as they seemed as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good. So we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet those who have been trained by it afterwards yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Think about it this way. Biblical love, first of all, is looking out for the best of somebody else, no matter what the cost is to me. Christ showed his love by going to the cross for my best, for my salvation. I have, uh, I have three kids, when they were small, and you guys may have experienced this, uh, they would love to run out into the street. They wouldn't care about cars, they just would run out into the street. So what's more loving for me as a, a good father? Is it more loving for me to go, keep doing it, have fun, 
Bye-bye. Have fun. And a car hit him, causing bodily injury and potential death? Or is it more loving for me, knowing this is going to upset my child, by the way, to pull him or her aside, say, what did I tell you? I'm not supposed to run out to the street. Why did I tell you to not run out to the street? Because I might get hit by a car. That's right. Very good. But because you discipline, or because you disobeyed me, I need to discipline you. I never call it punishment. We never call it judgment. We always call it discipline. So I need to lay over my knee and spank on the fat part of the body, right on the butt. All right. <laughs> Except for Ellie. <laughs> Ellie would be like. <laughs> So they would cry, and I'd be like, you know why I had to do that? Yeah, because I disobeyed you. You know I love you, right? Yeah, I do. You know, I love you, so therefore I discipline you. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what God does in our lives. And you need to understand, right now, I'm God in your life. And one of these days, you're going to be on your own, and you're going to have to respond to God that way. The next time they went to the street, they did this. <laughs> Held the backside, looked down, and then crossed the street. I'd rather put a little pain into the bottom of one of my children. And if you notice, I went through about what would take about five or ten minutes, so disciplining takes a while. Okay, proper discipline. But that's what we did. I'd rather do that than for them to get hit by a car. Well, that's what Jesus does for us. That's what God does for us in our lives. He's saying, I don't want my child to be hurt if he continues down this road, so I'm going to put some pain into his life right now so he can get his attention and correct the path. Or, you know, if you've been in sports, or um, for me, I was, you know, for myself, I did a lot of weightlifting. I wasn't uh, in sports, organized sports anyways, or you played an instrument, or you were in a band, you know, whatever you did, if you had a coach of some sort, a teacher of some sort, they would make you do some things over and over and over again. That is not fun. That is irritating. I'd have guys who worked out with me, and I would be bench pressing, and I'd be tired. And they'd one more, one more. And, and I would do one more because they told me to, which is kind of dumb. <laughs> Why am I listening to you? It hurts. You know, but anyways, we didn't. Not that it did any good for me, but we're not talking about that right now. Again, we don't like it. But we understand that that training, that pain and suffering causes us to become better, become stronger, to have stamina, whatever it is that we need for the thing that we're doing. So his discipline then conforms us to the image of Jesus Christ. Romans 8 says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good, parentheses, even pain and suffering. To those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. When we go through difficult times, we can know that this is a good thing ultimately because God's going to use that to conform us to look like Jesus. He's going to make us look more like Jesus. He's going to cause us, when we live life, to respond to life more like Jesus does. And ultimately, to get people's attention, and then for them to say, why are you acting? Why are you responding that way? Well, let me tell you about Jesus Christ. Let me tell you about what he's done in my life. We've talked about this before. 
what got our attention on Jesus Christ is when we heard the fact that he suffered so much for us. And that got our attention. And, Whoa, why would somebody, God, die on a cross like that for me? And that caused us to come to him and say, you love me and, and I want your forgiveness. When we live life that way, when we live as Christ lived and God's conforming us to that, people are going to be drawn to that. and People are going to want to know and we're going to be able to share and point them to Jesus. His discipline helps us know Jesus better. This idea of intimacy, to truly know him, not just know about him, but know him personally. Philippians 3 says, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Not, not that he may gain salvation in Christ, but he may gain knowing Christ intimately. It may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, that not working for his salvation, derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Five times Paul talks about loss or pain or suffering. And his ultimate desire is to know Jesus, to know all about Jesus, to know what Jesus went through. And so when Paul was being beaten to the point of death, when he was being thrown into jail, when he's being stoned, when he's being chased around by these Jewish religious leaders who were seeking to get rid of him, he identified with Christ and he saw what Christ was doing. And he wanted to be like that and show how much he loved Christ. And lastly, his discipline helps us comfort others. And I just love this. And this is what I want Grace Point to be about, by the way. 2 Corinthians 1, 3-4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction. Why? So that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. One of the great purposes that we have as followers of Christ is to allow whatever God wants to allow into our lives so we can experience Him and know Him. And then as we experience Him working in our lives, we then start looking for other people who are going through those same things and we share with them the comfort that we receive from God and we can tell them, I want to help you, I want to meet your needs, I want to do whatever I can do for you, but God also wants to. I'm representing God. I'm representing Christ. You're representing Christ. You go to work and people are going through difficult times. You have neighbors who are going through difficult times. You have family members going through difficult times. We have the opportunity to come to them and say, hey, this is what God is doing my life. How can I help you? How can I care for you? Well, I want to close by answering our last question. This is kind of our takeaway from this morning. How do we put people to this? How do we, rubber meets the road, how do we live our lives? First one is this. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your personal Savior, God is trying to get your attention. You're here this morning. You must be questioning it, thinking about it. Respond to the relationship that He's offering you. And He's offering it through Christ and Him being your substitute. Jesus Christ died an eternal death 
in hell and it rose again to pay the penalty for your sin, for my sin, and to provide a substitute for eternal life, spiritual life that we need in order to have a relationship with God. And here's how it goes. It's simple. Simple as ABC. Okay? One, you have to admit, yeah, I'm a sinner. I'm messed up. I'm screwed up. And I think we can all do that. I know I can. All right? I heard somebody say amen. What? You're supposed to know here. You're okay. We just need to admit that we're sinners and understand what that means, that we're separated from God. And we need to believe or put our full weight of trust on the fact that when Jesus died on the cross, he did that for your on your behalf. And you put your full weight of trust in that. Nothing else that you're doing. No other good things that you think you're doing. Not going to church, not being baptized, nothing but on faith in Christ and Christ alone. Then you confess it. And that just means speaking it with your mouth. Not that prayer saves you, but if you've been given a gift, you typically say thank you, right? I mean, I hope you do. And so we just say, Heavenly Father, I know that I've sinned. I'm separated from you. But I'm putting my full weight of trust. And when Jesus died on the cross, and rose again, he did that for me. Would you forgive me my sins? Scripture says that when we do that, God forgives us of our sins. Then he does something really cool. He puts God the Holy Spirit into our lives who washes that sin out, who then empowers us to live, live the life that God wants us to live, who gives us understanding as we read Scripture, and then when we die, He takes us and guarantees our place in heaven. Pretty awesome. Pretty cool. Before I talk to you guys who are Christians, I just want to give this opportunity. If I just want to lead you in a prayer. If you're here this morning and you have not accepted Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, I want to just kind of lead you in a prayer and give you an opportunity to make it a little bit easier for you, maybe, um, to do that. So if you just go ahead and close your eyes. And uh, again, if, if you're sitting here saying, yes, I need that, God got my attention and I wanted a relationship with Him, then just pray this prayer. Again, it's just your heart to His heart. It's, it's not the prayer itself. It's just the faith that you're placing in Christ. You just say, Heavenly Father, I, I know that I'm a sinner. And I know that I'm separated from you. But I also know and believe, putting my full weight of trust, that when Jesus died on the cross, he died on the cross for my sins, he rose again for my spiritual life, and that he is my substitute. He has taken my place. I ask you to forgive me of my sin. I thank you for that forgiveness and for the Holy Spirit you've placed in me. And I pray this in Christ's name. Now, just with your eyes closed still, if, if you've prayed that prayer, I would love to know that. If you just slip your hand up, let me know that you've prayed that prayer. And uh, I just pray for you. And again, if you've prayed that prayer, just go ahead and raise your hand. If you have questions about that, make sure you catch me after the service or shoot me an email. Uh, contact me in one way or another. You can go ahead and open your eyes. I want to speak real quickly before the band closes this out to you who are followers of Christ. Here's what I, I just want to encourage you to do. Number one, get with God in His Word. Spend time in God's Word, especially if you're going through suffering and difficulties right now. Get into God's Word. Take these uh, the passages of scriptures that I gave you. Read through them. Have a conversation with God. And let God speak to your heart about what we've talked about. 
as you do that, they're going to grow in your love and appreciation for Christ. And then one other thing with that. Pray and ask Him to help you identify those in your life who are going through difficult times that He can comfort them through you. That you can be His hands and His feet. Someone who is comforting them, caring for them, and pointing them to Christ. So we're going to close out. Kurt and the band's going to do that for us. Let's go ahead and stand.